Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Welcome to the Mother of All Talk Shows. You can listen to us in crystal clarity in the Washington, D.C. era on 105.5. I said era by mistake. I meant area. But in the Trump era, the president of the United States himself no less was listening on 105.5 FM to us in the Washington, D.C. area. And in the rest of the United States, we are on AM from coast to coast, from burning city to burning city. Now, not burning actually literally, but metaphorically, and we'll be talking about the extreme weather conditions from Siberia, to here in central London in the course of the show. Uh, But if you are uh, in the listening mode, you can listen throughout the world on sputniknews.com, all over the world. Thanks to Al Gore and the invention of the internet. And speaking of Al Gore-isms, you, if you are watching us, and half a million people do, every single week now, you can share if you're on Facebook with every friend that you've got in the world because algorithm is constantly trying to keep us down, shadow banning and actual banning and outright banning. Sometimes I make tweets that get 10,000 people's attention, likes, retweets. Sometimes I tweet clips that get 100,000 views and then and I can usually predict them in advance, I tweet and get only a couple of hundred. I send out a clip and get only a couple of thousand. So don't tell me that the big tech social media oligarchs are not watching us closely. I know that they are. But if you're watching on my Facebook, please share now. You can also watch on RT's multiple Facebook pages. You can watch on my YouTube and do subscribe if you are doing so. And I'm still waiting for that award that I'm supposed to get, supposed to have got many weeks ago from YouTube for achieving more than 100,000 subscribers. You can watch on Twitter, which an astounding number of you are going up every single week in leaps and bounds. You can watch on Instagram usually, but not tonight because my missus had to stay at home because of the extreme good weather at home. I gave her the night off. Uh, But you can also watch on my Telegram channel, and I really stress this to you. Given the activities of the aforementioned algorithm, you'd be better to get on my Telegram channel, uh, 
if not now, then in the next day or two, because in the end, that may be the last redoubt. Now, are you watching the Tokyo Olympics? Many people don't even know that they are on. In fact, we're running a poll on it. Are you watching the to Tokyo Olympics? A, yes, B, no, C, I've got a life. No, C, they should be cancelled. Cancelled for one of several reasons, no doubt. They say that we should keep politics out of sport, although some of the people that say that most loudly are amongst those that have ensured that Russia are not participating at this year's Olympic Games. Well, rather, the Russian Olympic Committee is, but it's got to call itself ROC, R-O-C. It's not allowed to fly the Russian flag. The proximate reason is uh, doping allegations, indeed the finding of uh, doping offences. But of course, Russia isn't the only country that has been guilty of that, have they? But Russia has been kept out of the Olympic Games. The reason I didn't even know that the Olympic Games had started comes as a surprise to me. Having watched them every four years on the BBC in kind of multi-screen, watching every sport that's going on there, I now discover that the BBC has been outbid for television coverage of the Olympic Games and now is restricted to only one sport at a time because the Discovery Channel, about which we're going to discover much more in the years to come, has outbid the BBC and will allow the BBC a license only to show one sport at a time and only on BBC One. Of course, on the Discovery Channel, you can watch all the Olympic sports, but only some of them free to view. The rest of them you'll have to pay for. And yet we were told, I was told in the British Parliament, that the Olympic Games, like the FA Cup final, would continue uh, to be a people's sport and continue to be covered for free. Well, I say free, but we are paying through the nose for the BBC in the first place. So one of the reasons for doing so just disappeared. You can no longer watch the Olympic Games in total on the BBC. So why are we paying this license fee? All kinds of issues arise. But of course, many Japanese people, the overwhelming majority of Japanese people, don't want these Olympic Games to be happening at all because they have a serious coronavirus problem and people flying in from all around the world to be involved in an Olympic Games was not quite what they thought fighting COVID-19 was. So it's all shaping up to be something of a fiasco. You may have a point of view on that. I'd like to hear it and you can vote in our poll now. And my first guest this evening is about a subject that is close to my heart. Forgive me if you've heard me say this before, uh, but I was engaged in mortal combat right up until the point of his death with Robert Maxwell, uh, the greatest thief of the 20th century, 
who owned an empire of newspapers, which periodically traduced would be a mild word, often libeled, slandered, defamed me across their multiple titles. The chief hatchet man for Robert Maxwell at the time was one Alastair Campbell. And Alastair Campbell penned an assault on me on the front page of the Daily Mirror, the Daily Record, the Sunday People, the European. I could hardly remember now the number of titles in which this attack on me was launched by Robert Maxwell through his hacks like Alastair Campbell. It came as, well, the Germans have a word for it, schadenfreude to me, when all of these hatchet men and women woke up one morning to discover that the proprietor for whom they lied so assiduously had stolen their pensions. One or two good people, like the editor of this program, had his pension stolen too. And I'm sorry about that. He's having to continue working, even though he's 93. Uh, he, his pension was stolen, but the hatchet men's pension was stolen too. And they had to pay me a very, very substantial sum in damages for that particular attack. But Robert Maxwell cheapened and coarsened and, well, frankly, subverted British public life for many decades, including an ill-starred four years in which he served in the British Parliament. Six years, in fact, 1964 to 1970. During which period, he became the chairman of the Catering Committee and promptly stole all their silverware and their best wine. And I'm really not making that up. Robert Maxwell was brought down in part by me in Parliament under privilege, accusing him of sundry offences, which all came to pass and much, much more. Prior to that, no one could name and shame Robert Maxwell for his multifarious crimes and misdemeanors because he simply would have sledgehammered you into the ground uh, with the libel laws if you had sought to do so. But he didn't reckon on me and parliamentary privilege. So I was at war for many years with Robert Maxwell. And thus I have followed the ill-starred career of Ghislaine Maxwell ever since. Imagine my surprise when Ghislaine Maxwell also turned out to be someone up to their neck in espionage and sexual uh, crimes and misdemeanors. She's now on trial for at least some of those crimes and misdemeanors, but my first guest this evening, Kirby Summers, is going to tell you things that will make your hair stand on end. As I say, it's now Freedom Week in England for the uh, time being, at least, one can go around maskless. One can go into restaurants uh, without wearing a mask. One can do all kinds of things that it feels I haven't been able to do for many years, though it's only been a year and a bit. It has been hell.
in Britain under the coronavirus. And most people are extremely happy that they are now freed from some, but not all, of the restrictions. But is it going to work? And is the price that we're being asked to pay for the ending of the lockdown and the lifting of the restrictions such an affront to civil liberty in Britain uh, that it's not a price worth paying? Many people feel that way. The issue of COVID passports is moving thousands of people. According to the polls, most people support them. I get that. But there are millions of people who think that the state coming into your uh, health records is one thing, perhaps one thing too far. But when Tesco or Sainsbury can have access to your health pass, can have access to your state of health, that may be a bridge too far. When you're being asked to provide proof of vaccination, when you don't agree with the vaccination and may very well be excluded from the bread aisle in the supermarket, if you cannot prove you've been double jabbed, that's taking us onto very thin ice indeed, isn't it? And the double jab which I have had and strongly urge everyone to have isn't turning out to be as great a level of protection as I, for one, had hitherto imagined. Same goes for Piers Morgan. Perhaps the greatest proselytizer for lockdown and vaccination in this whole country. He's writing from his sickbed in the newspapers this morning and says uh, that he almost died over the last week or two of coronavirus, even though he's double jabbed. So is the vaccination turning out to be as efficacious as most of us had believed and hoped. I'll be talking uh, to Dr. Ranjit Brar about that very subject in the course of this show. I'll be talking too about the extremities of the weather map in the world today. It is now undeniable that something big is happening with climate here on planet Earth. The heat map of the world in the 1970s is incomparable to the heat map of the world in 2019, another boiling hot summer. Uh, the flooding in China, in Germany, in Belgium was so extreme that one had to rub one's eyes in order to believe them. Germany, one of the most developed and well-organized countries in the world, had people and things being swept down the highways. So extreme was the flooding there. Belgium, not quite so well organized, suffered even more badly. And as I told you, London is flooding 
right at this moment. I never felt more silly wearing a straw hat when I see people with umbrellas blown inside out as torrential rain, thunder and lightning strikes the capital uh, of the United Kingdom. We'll be talking uh, to a very considerable expert about that later. And of course, no show is complete without the coolest of American cats, Garland Nixon, who'll be talking about politics and media stateside and the irrepressible Patrick Christie's who will be doing the same here in the studio about uh, British politics and British media. Are you watching the Tokyo Olympics? Yes, 21% of you. Surprisingly high number actually. Uh, no, 69% of you. C, they should be cancelled. 10% of you. Get voting now on my Twitter feed. Now, as I said earlier, Jeffrey Epstein uh, was a monster. Doesn't mean he committed suicide. Doesn't mean he wasn't murdered. And if he was murdered, it's murder most foul because he was a helpless man in a US prison cell when he was murdered, if he was murdered. I think his suicide came as a very great surprise to him more than anyone else. He's no longer here, at least we must assume. Uh, he's no longer here to answer the charges which remain at large against him of being not just a monster, a sexual predator, a pedophile preying on very young girls, but doing so in the context of a political and financial blackmail scheme by which people allowed him to use very large sums of their money or he might release evidence he had garnered of their sexual crimes. He had an accomplice, an apprentice, a partner in crime. That much is clear. And her name was Ghislaine Maxwell the daughter of the aforementioned monster Robert Maxwell. It is the murkiest of waters, as murky as the waters in which Robert Maxwell himself perished after he fell off the back of his yacht called Lady Ghislaine. Of course, he may have been pushed off the back of that yacht. I have my suspicions about that. Now, Kirby Summers is an investigative journalist and an author of note who's been following this whole murky, twisted tale as closely as anyone on the planet. And I'm glad to say she joins us now from the United States. Kirby, uh, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. First, bring Thank us. Thank you for having me. Bring us up to date on how the Ghislaine Maxwell legal proceedings are going, would you? Absolutely. I, I want to thank you for reminding everyone that this is an espionage case. Um, I want to preface what I'm going to say about uh, Ghislaine Maxwell by reminding people that Alexander Acosta, 
um, was told to back off that Epstein belonged to intelligence. So if we can say that about Jeffrey Epstein, we can certainly say that about Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, the, the other thing that I want to get into before I bring you up to date is that um, while people look at Ghislaine Maxwell as being Jeffrey Epstein's shadow and his partner, that is not the way his victims or her victims look at her. Uh, in fact, um, Bradley Edwards, who represents many of the victims, has said that it was Glenn Maxwell who began this whole thing, that without her, Epstein would not have done what he did, that the first victims that were procured were, were actually brought in by Glenn Maxwell. So what she has been trying to do in her case is well, is, is many things, right? She has been, she wants a, a get out of free jail card, really is, is bottom line what she wants. And to that end, she uh, has requested to be allowed out of jail five times and she's been denied. She continues to insist through her attorneys that the non-prosecution agreement given to Jeffrey Epstein in 2008 by Alexander Acosta should protect her, but this is incorrect because it is not the right jurisdiction, nor is it the right date because Glenn is being uh, held in jail for crimes committed uh, in 1994 through 1997. And then the fourth victim came in with uh, crimes committed in 2001. And then of course the jurisdiction took it out of the state of Florida and took it, let's say, into New Mexico and New York and even in London. Um, but she continues to insist that, hey, I have a non-prosecution agreement. Please let me out of jail. Uh, Judge Nathan has not agreed to date. I do not think that uh, Judge Nathan is going to um, allow her to get out of jail. She has also been trying to garner a lot of sympathy to this end. Remember that photo? Did you get to see it with her uh, trying to say that she had a black eye? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that was sort of like when your, your skin is very thin and she's going to be 60 this December. Um, that's sort of like a skin uh, discoloration. It's not really a bruise. But she has been making a lot of noise saying that her health is not well and that she is not sleeping and it's one thing after another the woman knows nothing but to complain um she is doing this i believe because she is trying to still get out of jail so as far as are we going to actually see a real criminal case my answer is no i do not believe we're going to see anything normal now don't forget it's November, so it's just a couple of months away. I think one of two things will happen, and you tell me if you agree with me, because I think you have a really good gut instinct on this. The first thing that could happen is, um, well, let me back up one step. So Doug Band, who was uh, Bill Clinton's right-hand man, has been cooperating with the prosecution. And that's very interesting because it sort of sets the stage, if you will, for what Ghislaine Maxwell ultimately will want. And that is to have a closed door proceeding, 
meaning that it is a spy case, right? This is not just a, as horrible as it sounds, a, a, a sex trafficking case that includes minors. That's horrible by itself, but this is also a spy case, which means that there's a lot of information that, in my opinion, the United States cannot afford to be made public as well as the state of Israel. Because in my opinion, I believe that Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, and this is based on my 20 years of knowing about this case and my research, have worked for both the United States and uh, Israel. Um, so I think that that's a possibility that, and, and it was actually used by, um, in the Iran-Contra case where it, it, names were being threatened to be used and suddenly they had to have the closed court. So either that's gonna happen or as she keeps saying that she is so sick She's going to pull a mafia trick. And what is that? She will claim that she is just too ill to stand trial and they will have to postpone. So if the two that I just said might happen, which are you more inclined to? Uh, the first one, uh, the, yeah. the idea that uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, the daughter of Robert Maxwell, could be involved in espionage on behalf of Israel and the United States would be the least surprising news I'll hear this year. Uh, the uh, allegations I made against Robert Maxwell in Parliament, under parliamentary privilege, uh, included uh, the allegation that he was an agent of Israeli intelligence, uh, right. that he had betrayed the whereabouts in London of the brave Israeli Jewish whistleblower Mordechai Vanunu, so that yes. he could be kidnapped and held in solitary confinement for almost 20 years. Uh, yes. And that allegation was confirmed by the burial of Robert Maxwell on the Mount of Olives by three serving and former Israeli prime ministers, five serving and former presidents of Israel, and three serving and former heads of the Mossad Israeli intelligence. So my allegations I regard as having been proved on the day of his funeral. So the idea that his daughter uh, would be involved in espionage for Israel uh, is buttressed, of course, by the extraordinarily close relationship between her and Epstein and Ehud Barak, the former prime minister of Israel, who was yes. a guest of Epstein on multiple occasions. Am I right? Yes, absolutely, 100%. In fact, Ehud Barak was given his own apartment at 301 East 66th Street. And for your listeners who are not familiar with that building, 
that Epstein was was actually given a lot of property. This building is uh, a couple of steps away from his main mansion on 71st Street on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And Ehud Barak was given uh, an apartment on the 10th floor. Whenever he was in town, that's where he would stay. His um, security guards would kind of congregate in the lobby to the annoyance of everyone who was there. Uh, but yeah, Barak uh, spent a good deal of time with Epstein and, and with Maxwell. But speaking of... Um, so I, but before you go on, yeah. uh, what might have been the attraction uh, for the former prime minister of Israel in hanging out with uh, Jeffrey Epstein? Well, I mean, you and I both know what it is, but also it is alleged by Virginia Dufresne, who has also said the same thing about Prince Andrew, that uh, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell uh, coerced her into having intimate relationships with Ehud Barak. Wow. Uh, oh, you had uh, not heard that? I hadn't, and that's a vision I'm going to try and uh, wipe from yeah. my mind. Let me, though, ask you, there are people who say uh, that this uh, Jouifre uh, is an increasingly discredited witness uh, who, who changes her story and gives information that turns out later to be untrue about her own life and so on. Uh, are, are you still confident in uh, her bona fides, as it were? I am 100% confident that Virginia Giuffray, if she said that Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell asked her to sleep with Prince Andrew on three separate occasions, I believe her to be saying 100% the truth. I have known Virginia uh, initially through uh, Twitter for close to two years now. And um, she's a, a, a very kind and loving person despite every horrible thing that has happened to her. Remember, what happened to her happened a very long time ago. She was a young teenager, 14-year-old teenager on the streets. Um, and she had been in um, sort of like this institutional care. She had run away from that. And before falling into the clutches of Ghislaine Maxwell, who plucked her out of uh, Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago in Florida, she was sort of in the clutches of another a trafficker. So she did not, you know, she was very young. She was not given an opportunity to go to school like normal people because when she tried to do that at the age of 16 was when she was working at Mar-a-Lago. I'm sorry, at the age of 15, I've got that wrong. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell was driving by. She spotted her. She made a beeline toward her. The girls... I don't know if you're aware of this. The girls that were targeted by both Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein had a very similar look. They were slight, they were blonde, and they were very young teenagers. And, and Virginia always looked younger than her years. So at 15, she looked 13. She looked, and so this, when you when people look and say, oh, well, Ghislaine Maxwell was in love with Jeffrey Epstein and they were a couple, no, they were never a couple, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the um, victims. 
They were never holding hands. They never kissed. They didn't sleep in the same bed. Um, and it is, it's really, is, is Galen blonde and thin? And is she 14? No. No, that's uh, all true. Uh, now, uh, <laughs> let, me, uh, l- l- let me pose what uh, for me is the more, I mean, you're right to say, monstrous as those sexual allegations all are, uh, they pale into insignificance compared to the real crimes that may well have been being committed over many years of the deliberate entrapment for blackmail of very powerful political people and the deliberate entrapment for blackmail uh, for financial reasons uh, of some of the richest men in America. None of that is going on trial in November, is it? No, it's not. Um, And and, look, I believe that Leslie Wexner and Leon Black, in my opinion, and I know about them personally in my own life. I I think that, um, I think you know what an intelligence agency does, right? Uh, So for example, let's take Harvard University as an example with the MKUltra program of the 1950s with the CIA. What the CIA did in that instance was they created about a hundred shell corporations. The hundred shell corporations were each funded. They then in turn contacted, let's say Harvard and some psychiatric hospitals and other universities. And they said, hey, we're, we're performing some studies, some scientific studies, so we wanna fund this program. And so that the, the end user, let's call it Harvard, did not know where the money was coming from, did not know it was a CIA assignment that they were conducting. I looked at Leslie Wexner and at Leon Black as a funnel, which funneled money into the Jeffrey Epstein, Glenn Maxwell trafficking ring and kept it going on behalf of the US and Israel. Yeah, I suppose I'm asking, uh, were they doing this because they're perverts? No. Or in order to entrap people for the purposes of financial stroke political blackmail? No, they were doing this for po- political um, to to stay in power. Uh, this is all to enhance and retain the power of Israel, enhance and retain the power of the uh, people who have been purchased and paid for in the United States and in countries all over the, the world. It wasn't just limited to politicians or wealthy men that lived in the United States. You have your own problem there in the UK with Prince Andrew. It, this happened, you know, we, they, he was also connected with um, Saudi Arabia. This happened all over the world. They had Andres Pastrana, who was even had a Saudi passport. That's right. I mean, so Unbelievable. this was not limited. Yeah. A, a, a U.S. citizen, Jewish. Yes. Working for Israel, had a Saudi passport. Yeah, but we can thank um, we can thank that gun runner uh, 
uh, what is his name? He was very big also with Iran Contra. Khashoggi, uh, so Adnan, Adnan yeah, Khashoggi. Yeah, we can thank him. Yes, yeah. because he was he was someone who came into Jeffrey Epstein's life very early on. He was also, as you probably know, in Robert Maxwell's life. He was big he was, time. He sold yeah, the, yeah. the yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, off which Robert Maxwell fell, used to be owned by the Saudi gun runner Adnan Khashoggi. No, it was uh, actually his his nephew made it for for Maxwell. Now, what's interesting about that is he he made it. It was almost supposed to be for himself, but he he mirrored exactly Khashoggi's yacht, which had state-of-the-art satellite equipment that allowed him, when he was going to do business, he did it in the same way as Jeffrey Epstein. He also had sex slaves. He would take his yacht into the water, and, and his yacht ended up with Donald Trump later on in, in, in future years. Uh, but then he would take it out into international waters. He would have the young girls on board. He would then... If the if the young girls and he would he would have it also, you know, if there were pinhole cameras in the bedrooms. If if blackmail didn't work or if if just they did not want to do business with him, uh, he would blackmail them. There was no way to say no. So that Robert Maxwell's yacht, which was built for him by Khashoggi's uh, nephew, was built with the same all of the same kind of like jazzed up equipment um, so that he can he too can conduct business on international waters and always stay in touch, let's say even with the stock market, right? And this is a long time ago. We're talking about the 19 mid 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, long long before technology yeah. made that possible for yeah. for your everyday millionaire, never mind billionaire uh, media yeah. magnate. But I'm right, right in saying that none of these uh, political issues will emerge in the courtroom in November, which brings me back to your dichotomy that you posed earlier. They will almost certainly, in my view, close the doors on this trial for, th for the very reason that the risk of uh, some of this becoming common currency in a courtroom in the United States is too great for them. That's why it will be a closed door trial. Isn't that right? That's what I think. I also um, know that, let's say, for example, you, you brought up Virginia Giuffre. So she's tweeted every now and then that Ghislaine Maxwell is such a selfish woman that she will give up everyone, including Prince Andrew, frankly. Um, and so that that would be another way for her to maneuver this case out of the public eye because she doesn't want to be in the public eye. You know that she has her family trying to have a Twitter account, trying to talk to mainstream media and say what a wonderful woman she is. <laughs> um, it, it, she just wants this over. Now, is she going to be ever allowed to live a free life? I hope not. Um, I, I, I've lost a lot of my belief in our justice system, um, even before the Epstein case. 
However, I do hope for the victims that they will get some kind of closure. They can only get that if there is a semblance, even a semblance of justice in, in the trial. Well, look, it's absolutely fascinating. You've been a brilliant uh, commentator on it, Kirby. I hope you'll come back you. in November absolutely. and we'll talk again about Sounds the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Peter says the Afghan people have lost, George. I thought you were better than this, to be honest. Give me a call, Peter. Tell me what you mean. And Oliver says, for some reason, George was on the jihadist side when it came to Yugoslavia. And that's the reason I will never trust him. I fought against the war on Yugoslavia with all my breath and all my heart. Me and Tony Benn and Jeremy Corbyn and others were practically the only people in this country opposing the war on Yugoslavia, the destruction of Yugoslavia. How dare you, you imbecile? If you have any guts, you'll pick up the phone right now and call this show and justify that utter slander. Really. And uh, Yoda says, love the show, best entertainment and education on the airwaves. <laughs> Is Joe Biden senile? A, clearly. B, arguably. C, who am I? Well, <laughs> the fact that we even have to ask that question of the man who holds the codes to thousands of thermonuclear weapons, one or two of which could bring to an end life on this planet is slightly troubling. Who better to ask than a man with the sharpest eye in political journalism in the United States? It's my old friend Garland, Nixon Garland. Uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't write that poll, uh, and maybe it's not in the best of taste, I say, uh, <laughs> to protect myself. Uh, but the fact that such discussions are going on, particularly over in Europe. I don't know what it's like. Maybe you're more polite in the United States. But as Jimmy Dore put it, your president is a walking death rattle. Uh, where do you stand on this? Is this elder abuse, putting this man in this position? Or are we all misunderstanding him? Well, there are a couple of things here. This is not just elder abuse. This is abuse of a, an entire nation, an entire society by um, putting a man in a position that basically embarrasses himself, embarrasses in part his, his party, and embarrasses the country. But it exposes the reality of this co corporate oligarchy in which we live. Joe Biden, we knew, everyone knew prior to his election that he was not, um, you know, mentally um, prepared to, to hold the to hold the the position of president of the United States. But what became even more obvious was that the, the powerful oligarchs who run this country, you know, we're always talking about Russian oligarchs or Ukrainian oligarchs, but, you know, the people in America who run things are just billionaires. We can't use such a pejorative term for those gentlemen. But what we find is that Joe, uh, a Joe Biden is precisely what they want. 
someone who is a hollow and empty suit. Let me read from you really quick. This is from Joe Biden's town hall. He said, quote, and the question is whether or not we should be in a position where or why can't the experts say we know that this virus is in fact, it's going to be, or excuse, we know why all the drugs approved are not temporarily approved and but permanently approved, that's underway too. That was Joe Biden, ostensibly according to the oligarchs in America, the leader of the quote, free world. (laughs) Staggering. I wish we could put those words uh, up on the screen or even the video uh, of it. One video after another after another shows the man to be really in a parlour state, which has to mean that the vice president is really calling the shots. Now, I read that she's tanking in the opinion polls. She might not even win the primary to succeed uh, Joe Biden. Uh, She didn't win a single delegate uh, when running for office herself. She is a creature of pure patronage. She was plucked, plucked, I said, from the crowd uh, of uh, uh, potential uh, VP candidates uh, and given that position precisely because she doesn't actually stand for very much. She's a she's really a blank piece of paper, isn't she? Yes, and she is a perfect to me. She is a perfect example of the reality of the the neoliberal identity slash diversity politics, where she checked all the boxes except the boxes of competence, except the boxes of ability. She checked the boxes um, that don't count. If you were, if you just needed to vote on a candidate based on a picture of the candidate, well, there you go. She looks good. She occasionally sounds good. However, when it comes to her ability to connect with people, it is not, um, she has none. When it comes to her ability to address policy competently, she has none. And that's not to say that she's, that's not to address her intellect. I'm sure she's a a brilliant person. She graduated from law school with good grades, etc. But when it comes to her ability to have uh, some connection with the common man and woman, to understand their needs, and to have any drive whatsoever to address their needs, that is obviously absent. And she doesn't even have the ability to fool people. I would argue that Donald Trump, while he was, you know, a, a they called him the blue collar billionaire simply because he was able to fool the working class into thinking that he had their concerns, um, you know, in mind. She's she's just another, you know, a puppet for the billionaires. And she doesn't even have the ability to fool people. And I think the um, the people behind her, the people who are running the party who stuck her in there are aware of that. And I think the rumblings that we're hearing about her is in reality um, an indicator that they're starting to look for a way out. They know that calamity is at hand if they run the likes of one uh, Kamala Harris in 2024. Yeah, I mean, if she was to stand against Donald Trump in 2024, my money would be on Trump beating her. Well, here's the thing about it. Not just Donald Trump, who couldn't beat Kamala Harris? She could not defeat anyone in her own party in the primaries. She didn't get a single, uh, she didn't get a single uh, uh, um, delegate. It would be like taking someone who was on a high, who couldn't make a high school soccer team and trying to put them on a professional soccer team as the, as the, you know, the, the start, as a, as a starter. 
she's she was completely unable to um, perform in professional politics, and they stuck her at the very top of the. Well, I'll put it like this: they used her to give the appearance, the illusion that she was at the top of the power structure. And and that's the problem. What we're looking at in America with Joe Biden, with Kamala Harris is the same thing. The illusion of power, the illusion that they're presiding over the United States and this team of incompetence just makes it clearer to everyone now that they are in charge of nothing. Now, uh, Trump's not gone away. Uh, whether he'll last till 24, I'm not so sure, but he hasn't gone away. Uh, and he's slowly uh, targeting his enemies, isn't he? He's now uh, put the black spot, as, uh, as was said in, uh, in Treasure Island. He delivered the black spot to uh, uh, the daughter uh, of, uh, of Dick Cheney, uh, who was one of his persecutors in chief in his own party. He's going to do whatever it takes to destroy her, to replace her as the Republican nominee uh, in, in, in her state. He's going through his enemies, Syriatum. Now, on one level, that's quite entertaining to see. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm not really much concerned who wins between Donald Trump and uh, Liz Cheney. Uh, I wish they both could lose. Um, but on another level, it shows an obsession on the part of Donald Trump with settling the scores of last time, which my instinct tells me will not be enough to be a presidential candidate in 24. Where do you stand on that? I don't know about that. You know, I don't estimate Donald, underestimate Donald Trump anymore for this reason. Donald Trump had one thing that he does well as for many of us, he's not the most likable person in the world, and many of us can see through Donald Trump. However, he has a way of finding people that are far easier to hate than he is. So when CNN or MSNBC attack Donald Trump and you know use their sanctimonious uh, moral positions to tell us how bad Donald Trump was, people realized, well, we hate you far worse than we hate Donald Trump. When he goes after um, uh, 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 any of the anyone with the last named Cheney, who's remotely connected to Dick Cheney or, or, or the Bush administration, he knows this. No, My name could be anything. I don't exist. I have found people that are far easier to hate than me, that people see as a gigantic threat. So I think one of the gifts, if, as it were, of Donald Trump is finding people who are, who are more disliked, who are more hated, who are more representative of a crash system than he is, and even reminding people when people say, well, Donald Trump, you know, he skated through the system and didn't pay taxes, he'll remind people, these are the people that created the system in which I didn't have to pay taxes. So I don't underestimate Donald Trump only because I live in a system where there are people who can be easily um, pointed out as worse than Donald Trump and easier to dislike than he. Than he, than he. Well, that's a brilliant answer. I'll make a brilliant clip. Uh, you might have been talking about Nancy Pelosi, uh, <laughs> whose personal wealth has to say multiplied would be to understate it. It has exponentially increased in the long period in which she sat in US government um, because she's married to a guy who benefits mightily from the inevitable pillow talk 
uh, with Mrs. Pelosi in the evening times. Uh, these are the people telling us that Donald Trump is rotten. Yes. And additionally, here's another big problem the Democratic Party is going to have. And that is they I mean, you know, they pretend as though they won in some kind of a landslide as as, as though America chose them over Donald Trump because Donald Trump was so terrible and they were so great. When in reality, they barely slipped by Donald Trump by the skin of their teeth and they dragged along the left. They dragged along progressives mainly because they said you've got to vote for us because Trump is so bad. And many of them believed it. That's not happening next time around. Um, they have been exposed after the uh, after they won by the skin of their teeth. And might I add, they actually lost houses in the seat and they barely, barely won the Senate and lost um, throughout in, in many of the state houses. After that, they turned on those same progressives that they had asked to to come along with them and said, well, we would have won more. The, 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 the reason we didn't do better is because of you. So I suspect in 2022 and 2024, um, number one in 2022, Trump will not be there. And I expect the Democrats to get pounded pretty bad. Um, but in 20 in, in 2022, but in 2024, um, people, the the um, progressives in the party, the left flank of the party will have either left the party or said, you know, we've been down that road one time and uh, you can go ahead and pull this one off on your on, on your own. And I suspect we will see what we see in America every eight years. And that is every four to eight years, whichever party is neoliberal war party is in completely. Um, everything falls apart. The people are unhappy. Their lives are worse. And then they ping pong over to the other party and then they get eight more years of you know, of, of, of horribleness. And I suspect that come uh, 2024, we'll go back over to the Republicans and they'll do a fantastically miserable job of screwing everything up. Now, speaking of which, how's the U.S. economy doing? Well, you know, there are a lot of things going on right now, and that is um, we are in a period of time where the um, the uh, uh, the laws that prevented um, uh, uh, landlords from evicting people is about to end. And so while the U.S. economy seems to be moving ahead, you know, fairly decently. We have high inflation, which means that people are having trouble paying their bills, and we're about to have some kind of an eviction um, apocalypse, which I suspect will have a significantly, uh, a significantly negative impact on our economy. And let's not forget, we are also facing a, a horrible situation out west where we've got wildfires, we've got a, um, a you know a unthinkable heat, 110 degrees, 120 degrees all over the place, and what's not being discussed is the spring wheat harvest is predicted as a result of the drought and the, um, the, 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 the heat. Our spring wheat harvest is predicted to be 41% lower than 2020. So I suspect we will soon be seeing, as a result of the drought, we're going to be seeing food prices. Um, California, this, the, the, there's a huge fertile valley in the, center, in the center of California. It's like 450 miles long and 60 miles wide. But it's in the midst of the drought and heat as food prices continue to rise and make it much worse and food may get, may, may get considerably more scarce. Uh, let's just say things don't look good for the near future in the United States. We'll keep a close eye on that latter point, especially Garland Nixon. Thanks, as always, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. From the makers of Track and Trace comes the Boris Johnson sat-nav. Right, uh, next right. 
no, left. I, I mean left. Uh, what? Yes, I. Yes, no, this left. Oh, cracky, you've missed it, bugger. Um, no bloody Tories. Or, or have you? Ah, uh, turn around. Or in fact, don't turn around. Carry on. Yes. <laughs> you have arrived at your destination. Freedom. How's it been for you? Let's catch up with Moats Medic, Dr. Ranjit Brar, as we come to the end, Dr. Ranjit, of uh, the first week of uh, Freedom. How's it all working out? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. George, good to be with you. Um, so freedom is a is a is a relative term. Uh, we can't be more free after the pandemic than we have been before it, and of course, many social problems remain. But from the point of view of uh, the coronavirus, uh, restrictions were lifted. But simultaneously with that, we've been inundated with warning messages that, despite there being no legal obligation any longer uh, to isolate that really we're under a lot of serious threat, we should continue to wear masks, we should continue to observe uh, social distancing wherever possible. Certainly we, it, it's become a legal requirement uh, in London transport to uh, continue to wear masks, um, though in fact all of those uh, transport systems are absolutely packed and masks will have little impact on transmission. But what have we seen in terms of the numbers? Um, well, there was a lot of um, concern amongst academics, virologists uh, uh, and medical doctors uh, to an extent, uh, as well as policymakers, that we were uh, seeing another wave of infections. Now, when I last spoke to you, um, it was my strong belief that um, the amount of immunity generated by principally uh, immunization uh, of the vulnerable, sick and elderly, and secondly, then those who haven't been uh, immunized more than half of them having already had the coronavirus, that that would insulate us against the worst effects. And I think that's largely still true. Um, if you compare the waves of infection that we had in the first wave and the second wave, it was quite clear that there were very major surges in deaths, very major numbers of deaths by a, a large amount of excess mortality. Yes, principally dr uh, driven by the elderly. Yes, principally driven by the infirm, but very real figures nonetheless of people dying from, not with uh, the coronavirus. And I think we're probably looking around 150,000 people really having died in terms of our excess mortality during this pandemic, George. If you look at this third wave, whilst the numbers probably has peaked, actually, so we were looking last uh, week at around the 50,000. Yeah, uh, they've gone down in, uh, in the last week. 
They have, and it seems that they're currently uh, consistently going down for the last five days, uh, six days, uh, and we're around the 30,000 mark, and we've not seen the spike in deaths, anything like the spike in deaths associated with the last two waves. So, so I still say overall, you know, that this has been the correct time to come out of um, very strict social isolation and lockdown type measures, um, both because it's summer, both because school is coming to a close, but most importantly, uh, not just for behavioural reasons, not just for social reasons, but actually because um, the vaccination program has largely been uh, successful at isolating the most vulnerable, the most elderly, those from whom the greatest number of deaths and hospitalizations came, George. Yes, uh, I want to turn to the, the, the vaccination. Uh, I was struck by um, Piers Morgan, uh, with whom I have quite friendly relations. There's no schadenfreude in this for me. Uh, but he wrote today that he almost died in the last week or so from coronavirus, even though he's had both injections and is the, one of the greatest champions of uh, vaccination and indeed other lockdown measures, though he doesn't always practice what he preaches. And he was in a mass crowd at the Euros, at the football championships at Wembley, and believes that's where he caught it. Um, is there a sense in which the vaccines, which I wholly support and absolutely encourage everyone to have, but the vaccines haven't, aren't quite up to the mark as we thought they were, uh, not quite providing the kind of protection that we thought they would? Um, it's an interesting question, George, and you know, I think it's always dangerous to judge um, overall population efficacy by individual anecdotal cases. Um, uh, but there are several studies we've seen around the world which have shown that it is possible to be vaccinated and still to get the coronavirus. It's possible to have had the coronavirus and still get the coronavirus. But uh, the numbers are much lower. So if we look, there was a very large study after the first wave conducted at St. George's University, where my, my wife works and it's quite close to where I live, um, that showed probably 95% protection against coronavirus from a previous case of coronavirus. And those who did get it a second time had much milder course of symptoms. And we're really seeing similar figures for the majority of vaccinations. They're slightly different from case to case. And we cautioned when we first talked about the vaccination, these have been very rapidly developed vaccinations. Some of them are relatively new technologies. We don't know fully their safety profile and their efficacy. I, I, I met a friend of mine, um, my son was playing tennis against um, uh, his son, and he said he knew two people uh, in their 30s and early 40s uh, who had had the vaccination and had developed, uh, you know, um, essentially had strokes uh, from from venous thromboembolic events. And again, that, you know, it gives you a distorted picture of the risk of vaccination. Actually, if you look on the po population statistics, it's, it's very safe still. There are these cases of venous thromboembolism, but they're low uh, in, in, their, in their frequency, and therefore vaccination remains much the safest course of events, I think probably for anyone over 30, absolutely certainly. And vaccination still remains very efficacious with a really greater than 90%, maybe 95, 96% efficacy uh, against 
um, serious outcomes and much, much lower chances of hospitalization and death. There have been very few cases. Um, you're talking about probably around 100 people who've been double vaccinated who have ended up, up in hospital and have passed away. But that's 100 out of the entire population. Those are extremely low numbers. So actually, you know, clearly to me, uh, vaccination essentially has been very successful, our most successful measure. That's not to say that I think this is the way we should have handled the pandemic or our record has been exemplary. No, indeed. Uh, we, uh, like the, uh, the, uh, the uh, no doubt apocryphal Irishman, we wouldn't have started from here uh, on the road to Dublin. But on that subject, is there any comparative study of the efficacy of, say, the Russian vaccine, the Chinese vaccine, and the Anglo-American vaccines? No, I have not seen any um, group who have taken all of the different vaccines and uh, conducted their own randomized control trial. But what there are is very large sets of real-world data. I mean, the Chinese, if you want to talk about the people who've handled the vaccine really well through their uh, you know, incredible public health measures, mobilizing their economy and resources to isolate the virus and identify every positive case. They have occasionally um, you know, little outbreaks in cities and they literally must test the entire city, not, not the whole country, but the entire city. And all of the people who they find have test positive, symptomatic and asymptomatic, because we know there are very many asymptomatic cases. They're then put into social isolation. So they support them during the process of their recovery. And as a result, they still at, at this point have had 92,000 cases. They're a country of 1.4 billion uh, uh, population and they've administered 1.5 billion doses of their vaccine so they are working towards uh, building up a vaccine mediated herd immunity despite their very low number of cases so they no longer have to be on this permanent alert um, against new introduction of virus um, but there have been lots of separate studies you know so been lots of separate studies of real world efficacy uh, of all of the vaccines and the vast majority of them have actually relatively good efficacy the AstraZeneca probably slightly lower, but still against the things that really count, you know, against the hospitalizations, against the deaths, pretty much all the vaccines that have gone to, to market have been recognized by the World Health Organization. And that includes the, the, the Sinopharm and the Sinovac, the, the two major Chinese vaccines have proved incredibly efficacious. And actually, they've all proved efficacious against all the different variants in terms of those uh, most alarming statistics. And, and you can see the difference then between, you know, countries who have large amount of vaccine as, as we currently do um, as China does and between countries like Indonesia now who are experiencing an enormous um, you know a surge in their coronavirus cases and again this kind of shortage of oxygen shortage of hospital places many people dying at home so extremely distressing this is not over in the world by a long short and it, it's interesting to see I, I read um, an article just just today in, in the BMJ which essentially said if you look at the actual um, excess mortality figures. And while we have recognized in the world 4.2 million uh, cases of deaths from coronavirus, almost 200,000, sorry, 200 million cases uh, of coronavirus and 4 million deaths, actually the figures are likely to be double that and expected um, to become close to 9.5 million coronavirus deaths from the pandemic worldwide by September. So, you know, we, we, this story has some way to run. Uh, it's a story, again, of health inequality, of us needing to ensure that countries are vaccinated, and indeed of the, the world's normal political injustices playing out again in the field of medicine. So you can see that uh, America not only is tightening its regime change efforts in countries like Cuba uh, and Venezuela, 
But actually, they've used this uh, opportunity, their stranglehold on the financial system to stop Venezuela using its own money. For example, the money which is sequestrated by the city, uh, 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 sorry, by the Bank of England here, several billion of their gold billion, stopping Venezuela using its own money to buy uh, uh, the vaccines from the, from the Gavi, from the Worldwide Initiative, which is meant to guarantee health equality and protect the health of populations worldwide. They're stopping countries whose political system they oppose, for example, from having access to technology which would allow them to fight the pandemic. So deliberately inflicting death and destruction, hoping that through doing so, through this kind of punishment beating on populations of countries, that they will destabilize them enough to affect regime change. And this is the, this is the government, uh, world government uh, situation we're living, dominated by, I'm afraid, the United States and the United Kingdom and our governments are complicit in this. So that there You could uh, almost call that biological warfare, couldn't you? Well, it absolutely is biological warfare. I mean, there's lots of uh, immigration into Venezuela, um, you know, which will take coronavirus with it. How much of that is deliberately mitigated and how much of that is incidental is hard to say. But it's quite clear, if you look at the case of Cuba, there have been so many examples of viruses, dengue fever, against the human population, against their swine population, against their poultry population, deliberately introduced precisely to create uh, famine conditions. And I'm afraid that the pandemic is being used and the destabilizing effects of the pandemic are being used to heighten these kind of regime change operations. So there are many different stories to tell from coronavirus, but in terms of Britain, in terms of our Freedom Day, in terms of our relaxation uh, of restrictions, you know, I do think it's time actually to relax restrictions. I, I am not uh, worried about wearing a mask in public, in hospitals, we, we are still pretty much mandated to do so. And in many situations we're being encouraged to do so. But actually, I think we're going to see the petering out of this wave. And while coronavirus will not vanish from Britain, I think its effects uh, will become uh, you know, increasingly uh, weak. Uh, it's less and less likely to cause serious uh, injuries, serious harm, serious respiratory disease, and certainly less and less likely to cause death. Of course, I'm sorry for uh, Piers Morgan and other people who are suffering from the effects. And I would, as you say, absolutely encourage the population who are vulnerable to seek vaccination. I, I know there's a high level of mistrust and some of the sections of the population who have most reason to mistrust the government, mistrust them also on this question of whether the vaccine is safe and whether it's a good idea to take it. And it's a shame to see uh, their level of economic marginalization impact them and further give them even worse outcomes uh, in the current situation, George. Dr. Ranji Bra, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Peter says the Afghan people have lost, George. I thought you were better than this, to be honest. Give me a call, Peter. Tell me what you mean. And Oliver says, for some reason, George was on the jihadist side when it came to Yugoslavia. And that's the reason I will never trust him. I fought against the war on Yugoslavia with all my breath and all my heart. Me and Tony Benn and Jeremy Corbyn and others were practically the only people in this country opposing the war on Yugoslavia, the destruction of Yugoslavia. How dare you, you imbecile? If you have any guts, you'll pick up the phone right now and call this show and justify that utter slander. Really.
and uh, Yoda says, love the show, best entertainment and education on the airwaves. <laughs> Give, look, here, here's a video, look, we've been monitoring all this flash flooding in London tonight. Here's another extraordinary video we found on Twitter. It was taken by Thurry Bjork at around 5 p.m. It's a water spout, a storm drain, seemingly exploding under the pressure of the water. It's another thing wrong with Hammersmith Bridge. Will we ever be able to use that bridge? It is actually extraordinary. Anyway, we've uh, linked up with Matthew. Uh, Matthew Capucci is uh, a world-renowned atmospheric scientist and meteorologist. He's given us his time entirely for free, Matthew. I don't know if you knew it was entirely for free, but it is. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, what's going on in Britain right now? Yeah, so at the moment, you have a bit of a low pressure system off to your northeast, but as is oftentimes the case, when you get these lows, they're kind of these big swirls in the atmosphere, almost like atmospheric cinnamon buns, so to speak. And so you can have alternating tendrils of warm, moist air and cooler, drier air that are being swirled together. And that's why the weather today has been so erratic in places. you got kind of a big feeder band of moisture riding northwards, contributing to these heavy downpours, the cold air that's falling on the backside, helping to kick that really in unstable air upwards and generate prolific downpours. And because this low isn't moving all that fast, the rain can kind of backfill and stall and you get round after round of it. So unfortunately, this rainfall looks to stay around for much of the evening hours into the overnight. And it doesn't look like there's too much relief in sight for at least a little while. Tomorrow should be better, but for the time being, it's a pretty unsettled day. It's uh, part of a series, though, isn't it, of extraordinary weather events in Europe. And in Asia, uh, we saw extraordinary flooding in China. Uh, we've seen things that we never thought we'd see in a highly developed country like Germany, where uh, streets are being uh, basically flushed away, cars and people being flushed down the road. Is that the same explanation for them? So I think what we saw recently in Central Europe was more attributed to a combination of ordinary weather and then kind of a turbo boost by climate change. So what we saw was a cutoff low, this low pressure system that was kind of pinched off from the jet stream. And so as a result, there's nothing to carry it from west to east. It just kind of sat and languished and unloaded moisture. Now, one of the things that we see with climate change is that it has the potential to take ordinary weather events and push them to more significant levels. And so the warmer the world is, the warmer the atmosphere is, the more moisture it can hold, and that contributes to these heavy downpours. And so you take a system that would have had heavy rainfall to begin with and add in a bit of extra moisture and cause it to stall for a while, and suddenly this ordinarily, you know, decent event becomes something really significant with an even higher impact. And so I think that's what we saw the past couple of weeks. We saw that in Europe. We saw that in Asia as well. Zhengzhou suffered serious flooding with more than about uh, a meter rainfall in just one day's time. They had 200 millimeters in just an hour. And so they saw extreme flooding as well. I, I think that what we're seeing now is kind of the fingerprint of climate change being tacked on to ordinary events, pushing things into the extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, in your scientific field, is it fair to say that there is now zero doubt that we are experiencing significant climate change? 
we could argue about what caused it. We could argue about what we need to do about it. And many people would, the dichotomy of green versus growth and so on. But that there is extraordinary climate change going on is no longer capable of rebuttal. Am I right? You're exactly right there. We have so many attribution studies that look at particular weather events that say this simply would have would not have happened without climate change. Most recently in the United States, we had in the northwestern part of the U.S. and southwestern Canada, so British Columbia, we had temperatures hit 50 degrees Celsius, which is absolutely unheard of for Canada. One town light in British Columbia had three days where back to back to back, they broke the Canadian national record temperature. And you know what happened on the fourth day? The entire town burnt down from extreme wildfires that were catalyzed by the warm, dry conditions. And so we're seeing events like this that were made 150 times more likely thanks to climate change. We're seeing other things that simply wouldn't happen without climate change. And so, yes, we're used to ordinary weather and climate, but when you have kind of this preferential push by climate change, suddenly things that in the past would have been ordinary are being boosted and, and made much more extreme. And the unfortunate reality is we're kind of past that point where where you know we can kind of reverse at this point it's not a matter of whether or not we change our ways it's a matter of whether or not we can slow down the rate at which the atmosphere is changing slow down the rate at which the system is changing and, and to that end I, I think it's it's important that people remember we're not trying to avoid climate change at this point like it, it's happening it's ongoing right now we're trying to change faster than our environment we're trying to evolve more quickly than the conditions can and in many areas given the infrastructure that's an extreme challenge yeah an extreme challenge everywhere uh, in the world there have been of course extreme climate changes before we've yeah. had an ice age we've had uh, times when you grew uh, grapes and made wine uh, along Hadrian's Wall uh, in, in the north of England, the south of Scotland. Um, so we have had and survived climate changes before. To what extent are you worried about how dramatic this climate change period is going to be? I think that's a really good question, and it's one that we'd have to answer on a very local level because there will be winners of climate change and there will be disproportionately more losers. The issue is that our infrastructure is built to withstand 100-year events for the most part. We know that if there's going to be a flood, for example, we should plan for kind of the worst-case scenario we get in 100 years. Now, unfortunately, one of the challenges now, what once in the past would have been a 100-year event might now be a 10-, a 20-year event. So the recurrence intervals with which these events are occurring is, is becoming much narrower. We're seeing these sorts of extreme events more and over a wider area. At the same time, too, we're having kind of climate regions shift. So in the United States, for example, Boston, a city in the northern part, will in about 40, 50 years perhaps see the weather that Washington, D.C. will. And that's a completely different type of environment. And so the infrastructure that we've really set up for and, and based our planning around in terms of the conditions is going to have to be adjusted to accommodate that. And so I think going forward, I'm not necessarily worried about the survival of the species. I mean, you see a lot of headlines like that. That's mostly clickbait. What I am worried about is our infrastructure and if we've planned adequately for what we need to based on what's coming. We, we've built fine for what's happened in the past, but we're to the point now where conditions are changing quickly enough that the past is not an accurate indicator of the future. And so we can't we can't really prepare based on what we've seen before. We have to prepare on what's coming up next. 
So you're not, and I'm not, a, a catastrophist no. uh, who believes that we're hurtling towards the demise uh, of the species, of the planet. Uh, but what do you think is the overarching reason uh, for the heating up? I mean, I talked earlier about the, the heat map in the 1970s, which had some very hot summers. Uh, but compared to the heat map of the last couple of years, it, one map is vividly red and the other not, except for a few places uh, that you would kind of imagine would be extremely red. Um, is that where we're headed? Are we headed for a hotter world? I think so. And we have to remember that in the past, you're exactly right. We have had climate changes before. They were more natural in nature. You go back... A, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of years, we had what was called kind of a hothouse earth. And so we had temperatures that were mild. We had tropical plants all the way up to about 80 degrees north. There were rainforests in many more areas, but conversely, we've also had ice ages. So the climate does change in various cycles. We call these Milankovitch cycles. They're based on the periodicity of Earth's orbit. They're based on the shape of Earth's orbit. They're based on Earth's axial tilt. And a bunch of things that sometimes combine or overlap in certain ways that allow us to get more sunshine or less sunshine. And so that's something that's been happening pretty much since the dawn of time, and it will continue. The thing there, though, the changes that they see occur in the order of thousands to tens of thousands of years. What we're doing is accelerating our climate on the timescale of tens to maybe hundreds of years. And so the rapidity with which it's occurring is something that has been, for the most part, unprecedented before. And so I think that's really what's remarkable about this. And in the past, we've never had infrastructure. You know, the humankind has really been, a lo been around long enough in terms of our current societal infrastructure to experience any of these changes before, which I, I think is important to remember. In terms of just how red we'll get, we're, we're undergoing something called positive feedback mechanisms. In other words, Earth is sitting in kind of an unstable state. Earth, Earth's thermostat has always been very delicate in that if you nudge it one way or another, it will kind of take off and have a snowball effect. And so if you start heating the Earth through greenhouse gases, for example, you start awakening other mechanisms. For example, the polar ice caps, they start melting. But the polar ice caps are white, they're shiny, they reflect a lot of light into outer space. And so if you have those ice caps melt, suddenly you're not reflecting so much sunlight away and the earth is taking in more sunlight and heating up even more, or you're cooking up more water vapor into the atmosphere that traps heat even more effectively, or you're melting Arctic permafrost, which is releasing greenhouse gases, and those accelerate the climate change even more, or you're sparking more wildfires, they release greenhouse gases, and you get these positive feedback mechanisms. And so I think to that end, our climate models may not be overly accurate in terms of the pace of climate change. We know it's ongoing, we know it's occurring, but there's a good chance, based on recent events and based on these feedback mechanisms, that we may be accelerating even more quickly than we had thought in the past. And I think that's the key takeaway of this. Yes, there have been climate changes before. They were natural. They occurred on the order of tens of thousands of years sometimes. What we're doing is unnatural. It's anthropogenic. It's man-made and on the order of tens to perhaps hundreds of years. And beyond uh, laying in some umbrellas for this week in London, uh, what can we realistically do about that, Matthew? I think the biggest thing is twofold. We can plan for what's ahead in terms of changing our infrastructure. So drainage issues, relocating a little farther inland from the coast, 
making sure that people have the infrastructure for air conditioning, for example. Europe is extremely susceptible to heat events, and in Central and Eastern Europe, not many people have air conditioning at all. And so you can easily have tens of thousands of people die from a single heat wave. It's happened before many times. It just doesn't really get the media attention because the deaths, unfortunately, are, are what we call scavenging or harvesting, and that they're people who may have had underlying conditions. They might be the elderly, vulnerable populations who may have been more susceptible anyway. Suddenly you're kind of nudging them, kind of pushing them over the edge, and, and they unfortunately pass away from it. But it doesn't really capture the media attention it should. So that's an enormous issue. But we should start planning for things like that. We need to have more air conditioners out there. We need to make sure people know what to do. We, Like I said, better drainage. We need to make sure we're aware of the potential for flood events. Agriculture, we need to start planting crops that are, I, I guess, more resilient for the conditions that we can expect in the future. And, and at the same time, we really just need to make sure people are educated on the effects at the local level, because what happens in the United States, for example, will be different from what we see in the UK, will be different from what we see in Asia. It's really how climate change is affecting folks on a local level. Now, that's one aspect of it. We need to really adapt and, and mitigate for the most part and try to plan accordingly. The other thing we can do is, of course, taking steps to limit future warming. That said, that's something a lot of people don't really feel the urgency to do because it's not going to correct the problem overnight, and it very well may not even in our lifetimes. This is something we're talking about four, five, six generations in the future that will see the effects of what we're doing now. And so even if we stopped all emission of greenhouse gases today, we could expect the Earth to continue warming for perhaps 50, 100 more years thanks to ocean outgassing, thanks to everything we put up in the atmosphere now, thanks to the long half-lives of these molecules, which is unfortunate, but it really requires kind of playing the long game and paying it forward. We can make differences, but it's going to affect the next generation. For us, it's almost too little too late. Really well explained, Matthew. I've got a call, a good one, I'm told, uh, if you wouldn't mind staying on. Sure. Mike in South Carolina. Mike, welcome. What would you like to hey, George? What would you like to ask Matthew? Hey George, Matthew, it's great to talk to you. I, I, I didn't want to address this idea of climate change and how I think it actually is an existential threat uh, to human existence. I mean, we talk about the change in climate and how it's been changing, but you know, uh, humans have never been on this planet uh, as we know them, you know, Homo sapiens, since it's been this hot. Never has it been this hot since humans have been on the planet. And not only that. But the, the future holds way more increases in temperature for us than, uh, than what we're seeing right now. I mean, we're going to blow by this two-degree centigrade mark like it's, like it's standing still. And, and we're probably on our way to more like four or five centigrade. And, and there's a number of people out there that you can get in touch with, watch on, on the, uh, you know, on the uh, Internet. People like Guy McPherson, who's, you know, I understand that some people think he's a doomsday person, but... You also listen to people like Paul Beckwith, who is studying the, the uh, uh, climate on the, uh, in the Arctic. And it's, it's, it's stunning how fast we are moving towards an ice-free Arctic. And if that happens, uh, you know, the, the, this planet is, is, is really in serious trouble because that is the refrigerator for the planet. Uh, Matthew, uh, some advice for you there to do some studying on the Internet. Uh, you are, of course, an extremely learned man. Uh, what would your response be uh, to Mike in South Carolina? Well, Mike, thanks again so much for tuning in. I think you raised some really good points. And, and I think that you hit the nail on the head when you talk about these thresholds out there. Uh, I will say that in terms of the actual thresholds, we, we've heard the number two degrees Celsius floating around many times. We see it in the media a lot. And 
I, I almost think that number does us a bit of a disservice in that we so often see this number floated around, but there's no magic threshold. It's not a, a yes or no binary switch on off. It's something that the more we delay our, our actions and our response, the more quickly climate change will accelerate. And that's what we're seeing right now. Now, in terms of the actual temperatures, I, part of my job as a meteorologist is communicating weather events and weather events in the context of climate change to people. And I always tell folks, you know, most people don't give a darn about a two degree increase. If I were to put you in a neighboring room of your house with the temperature a degree or two warmer, there's a strong chance you wouldn't notice that. And so I think the focus is oftentimes too much on the actual temperature and not on these collateral effects. The fact that a two degree increase in temperature might correspond to 12 to 15 percent more water in the air and more significant rainfall events. The, the fact that a two degree Celsius increase may cause a, a change in where we see tornado activity or more, may cause more rapid intensification of tropical cyclones. Now, I don't see this as an existential threat. I'll, I'll be very clear. There will be populations that are displaced. There will be people who have to make mass exoduses to, to relocate to different areas. There may be some areas that in terms of how they're currently inhabited may no longer be feasible to be that way. I mean, Phoenix, Arizona, we're talking about a city that will routinely be over 120 degrees Fahrenheit by, you know, 2040, 2050. And California, the wildfires they're seeing out there are devastating. And that's something we can expect to see more of in the future. And so there are areas that the infrastructure will have to change. So it could be an existential threat if action wasn't to be you know, taken. I, I do think that there are steps people can take to make sure they're in a better position, both geographically and in terms of vulnerability than they are currently. And I think that really depends on what their hazards are, whether they're susceptible to the climate catalyzed hurricanes, the wildfires, the change in tornado frequency over the lower 48, the, the change in, in heat patterns across Europe. So ultimately it, it's down to a local level. The warming itself, the, the Arctic, I mean, I'm not in the Arctic right now. Most people don't go up to the Arctic. They, they really don't give a darn about that. But that's what we see in the media so often. So I think we need to shift the conversation from these, you know, the, the polar bears are, are having to swim to more of how is climate change affecting my geographic region in terms of the specific hazards that I deal with and how can I adapt accordingly? And do we have in place, Matthew, uh, governments in your country and mine that are fully enough seized of this? In my opinion, I would say not in the way they should be. We still, in the United States, for example, we have a flood insurance program that insures homes that are built right on the water. Now, I, I, and I got some backlash with this comment before. I don't think it's overly controversial. If your house is on stilts, then you're too close to the water. And yet we have people who build right on the beach in the United States. We have people who build in flood zones. And, and people are, are willing to kind of take that loss if they have high insurance premiums. And that's, that's just one example of, of an issue that we faced. Or Houston, the entire city of Houston, for example, floods incessantly. Infrastructure cannot handle the amount of rainfall they're seeing now. And I, I loathe to think about what it will be like in 30, 40, 50 years as Gulf of Mexico rainfall continues to, to you know, become more prolific. Or near the coast, we're seeing a, a dramatic uptick in the propensity for hurricanes to rapidly intensify before, becoming, before moving ashore. And I don't think people near the coastline, especially in the southern United States, are building homes the way that they should to be more resilient to these storms. And, and so ultimately, I think historically in the United States anyway, and I can't speak for the UK, but I know in the United States, the attitude has always been 
well, somebody's going to be struck by a natural disaster. It's cheaper to rebuild than cheaper to, to build resiliently. In the future, with these natural disasters becoming more common and, and with a wider footprint, that may no longer be the case. And so we may have to have a shift in strategy as to how we plan our communities. Fascinating. Thank you, Mike and Carolina. And thank you, Matthew Capucci, for brilliantly explaining uh, the phenomenon that we are now living through. Um, the latest forecast here is that I'm going to get very wet indeed after the show. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate, great. And I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland, and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? Now, the answer to my question is one of the miraculous phenomena in the world of football. Uruguay won the World Cup in 1930. Do you know the population of Uruguay? The population of Uruguay then was less than 2 million. And now is not much more than 2 million. Yet they've won the World Cup twice. There's something miraculous about that, Patrick Christie, who joins me now. Uh, <laughs> What are they doing right that other small countries, like uh, my own, yeah. uh, are not doing? Thanks for, uh, for joining us, as always. Uh, I know you're now an extremely busy man, and I hope that uh, continues. Uh, let's talk media first. All right, um, I was amazed to discover that, although I'm paying, <laughs> for how much longer, I don't know, a BBC licence fee, in part because... I could watch things like the Olympic Games on it all day uh, and all sports. Actually, I can't. They were outbid by the Discovery yeah. Channel and now have highly restricted access to it. Yeah. How did the BBC fail to secure their, as long as I've been alive, their traditional role yeah as the best people to bring you the Olympic Games? Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think first and foremost there's BBC arrogance. The second thing is that I think they tend to put personalities, in my opinion, often bang average personalities ahead of actual output, right? So dealing with the first one first, I think they thought that they could just offer whatever and that the people in charge of giving the rights to the Olympic Games will go, well, it's the BBC. Well, that reputation has gone. The old school idea of it's the BBC, it's fact, it's proper, it's proper television. That's out the window now because you've got the likes of the streamers and you've got the likes of your Disney's in, etc. like that. And Disney have basically stumped up a load of cash, 390 million quid, if we believe what's, what's in the papers. Now, the BBC have obviously decided that they felt as though they couldn't compete with that financially, but reputation alone might be able to give them that. And that wasn't the case. And now a lot of complaints have been gone in because actually people are thinking, well, hang on a minute, you're only allowed to show one sport at a time. You used to be able to press that famous red button and see anything from the pole oh, vault yeah. or whatever. And it was Absolutely. great. It was fantastic. Yeah. The other thing is, the likes of paying Zoe Ball a heck of a ton of money to, as far as I can see, lose you about 500 
100,000 listeners and say things like, that's a nice song up next, here's another lovely song. I don't quite understand why they're doing that. You like to see Gary Lineker's of this world as well. As long as you're paying talent, so quotes and quotes talent, that amount of money, and you therefore haven't got the money to do other things as well, then that's an issue. I think the BBC fundamentally is feeling the pinch, and I think that it's a, it's a representation of the market as it is. It's almost capitalism in action, really, in a sense. Yeah, I don't mind that. I mean, uh, I, I do it already. I pay BT, yeah. I pay Sky Sports, I pay MUTV, uh, because they've all got the rights to things that I want to see. Mm. Uh, I even watched United get <laughs> humped by Queen's Park Rangers last night and watched the aftermatch interviews. That's how much of a glutton for punishment <laughs> I am. But the BBC is not capitalism. Mm. I am forced to pay the BBC. Oh, yeah. Or I will go to prison. Yeah. Uh, and so if I'm going to be forced... I expect it at least to deliver its reputational, age-old, traditional role of royal weddings and yep. funerals and the Olympic Games and the FA Cup final and so on. Well, you used to get the cricket on there as well, didn't yeah. you? You used to you get lost, all of this lost stuff the and, and you've lost all that. And that's a very good point, that, George, because the other thing that we also expect the BBC to do as well, which I would argue that they're not doing, is to give us a proper unbiased news service. And so when you really look at it in the round, right, what are you getting for your money now if you pay the BBC licence fee, as you say, on pain of prison, right? So you're getting, I would argue, exceptionally biased news coverage a lot of the time, slanted one way or the other, certainly not all the time that accurate, the amount of time that they have people on there who turn out to be activists for a particular party, the amount of time that when you do a particular report, especially in the run-up to an election, and you see who's on the production staff of that report, they turn out to have links to various different parties, etc, etc, etc. So the news service, at its core, is not OK. In fact, I would argue that it's rotten. And then you look at the kind of sporting elements of it, the pageantry of the sporting elements that the BBC supposedly do quite well. Well, now they're losing out there as well. And then you look at, well, OK, well, are they giving us entertainment? Well, some things, like Peaky Blinders, I would argue, is pretty good. They do give you the odd thing, Killing Eve, fantastic stuff, OK? But they also give you programmes, a six-part documentary on Britain's longest road. And I don't think that's particularly great value for money, to be honest with you. Well, I can't wait to watch that one myself. Mm. Uh, it goes on for ages, literally. <laughs> speaking of talent, um, GB News, yeah. we talked about it last week, yeah, yeah. made a bad start. Yeah. Their answer is Nigel yeah. Farage. Is that the answer? Well, it's certainly been the answer so far. And you can't, you know, Nigel gives you, Nigel gives you numbers. And actually, he's also quite an underrated broadcaster. Whether or not people agree with his politics, that's one thing entirely. But actually, he's very good at his job. And he's a, he's a, he's a consummate professional as well, despite this kind of image of this hard-drinking, large-socialising chap, which he is all of those things, of course. But he's also very good on television and radio and whatever job you give him to do. And so, yes, I think he massively is uh, uh, moving in the right direction. I can fully understand why they didn't go for him initially, because it was too stereotypical, right? GB News, let's launch the Nigel. Farage show, right, it writes itself. So I think there was an initial kind of bit of, let's give him some time. Um, so GB News, I think, clearly is, is there's changes afoot, aren't there, really? And I think that it seems to be moving in, in the right direction in that sense. There is a market there for it. It's whether or not they get that right. There's definitely a market for, uh, for an alternative to the BBC, even an alternative to Sky, which really shares mm. most of the prevailing assumptions yeah. uh, of the BBC hatred of Brexit uh, often sounds like, looks like, a hatred of the country, mm, mm. a hatred of the people in yeah. the country anyway, who stubbornly refuse to go along with their liberal yeah. uh, agenda. Definitely a market for it. Uh, 
do you think though that they've having having invested all this money mm. uh, that the owners might now be having second thoughts or are they in blood so steeped, uh, is it bloodier to go on or to go out? Oh, I don't see how you could walk away from it at this particular juncture. At the end of the day, there's a start-up there, and there's, by any stretch of the imagination, a start-up is going to have difficulties. I think we can all name a couple of other start-ups. I mean, I've worked for a couple, for example, where things have not even got off to this good a start. I think one of the reasons, perhaps, why they launched as early as they did was more due to commercial pressures, and one can understand that. It's an expensive business, having to set up and start and run a corporation of the size of GB News. I think it's a credit to GB News and to the staff involved and to everyone there in the management, that they've managed to have a go as much as they have so far, and I think realistically the only way is up. And I do think as well, like you've just said there, the pure fact of the matter is that the British public, and it's to a massive credit to the British public this, that in the face of an onslaught of, I would argue, media bias and political class bias and establishment bias and all this, actually time and time, well not time and time, especially the, 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 the EU referendum, we stood up and we were counted and we weren't swayed by that. So can you imagine what actually happens if you're presented with a news channel that speaks for you, or certainly speaks more for you than the establishment media. Yeah, interesting. Now, on the political front, it looks to me that Boris cannot get his COVID passport through in the House. Yeah. I think he's, uh, he's going to lose that vote. If, uh, if uh, Keir yes, Starmer yes. Yes. performs as he presumably will, opportunistically, yeah, yeah. there's enough rebels... Well, this is the thing, isn't there's it? There's enough rebels to defeat Boris. Well, this is the thing. It would be nice if the person voting against Covid passports had some kind of principled skin in the game. He doesn't. He's obviously being a chancellor about it. However, I also think it's great that he's doing it, right? Because I, I'm, I'm a person, personally speaking. I'm a person Covid passports. And I find it absolutely staggering that we have this supposedly libertarian Prime Minister who actually at no point really in his political life has ever shown you that he's a libertarian particularly. He's, he's just done some stuff like being mayor of London and things like that celebrated the Olympics. You don't need to be a libertarian to get stuck on a zip wire, right? So, and, and so now, now we're in a situation where unless we have some Tory rebels, he's done a very shrewd thing, by the way, the likes of your Michael Goes and your Jacob Rees-Mogg, who you would imagine will currently be doing some serious damage from the back benches. Well, they're in the fold now, aren't they, right? So they can't be the vocal people speaking out. They can't be whipping up the 1922 committee in the way that they would normally be doing. So we're relying on the rebels, of which we believe there might be about 40. We're then also relying, obviously, on Labour and the Lib Dems, etc. And so there's a chance that it will go through. One of the issues that I have with Keir Starmer is that he's against the Covid passports, at least he is for now. He does, as far as I'm concerned, have a, a spine made of cooked spaghetti and therefore there's a bit of an issue with that, whether or not we actually see this one through. Blamange, in fact. Let's take some uh, calls. Uh, Dan in Liverpool. Go ahead, Dan. Hello? Yes, Dan, you're welcome. Go ahead. Hey, sorry, no problem. Um, I just want to ask, like, what, what's your um, opinion on... The current Labour Party, I mean, you know, you were Labour and friends with Nicholas Sturgeon and all that, and I don't mean to use that disingenuously, but how do you see Labour ever winning? Never. Like, I, I don't election? see Labour ever winning, and I don't want them ever to win. I wish Labour Labor perdition. Uh, but let's hear what Patrick thinks. The Labour Party, you in a way just summed it up. Mm. It's led by a man uh, with the moral principles... Mm. Of a, of a jellyfish. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a Labour Party at the moment led by a bloke who's not done us the common courtesy of telling us what he thinks about anything, which is a bit of an issue, right? So when you're going to be asked to vote, and we saw it at the local elections where Labour got served, and we've seen it numerous times as well, actually I think it's catastrophic, and I think it's insulting, the idea that you're not actually telling us what it is you want to vote for. I'm not, I'm not against the Labour Party. What I am saying is a matter of kind of democratic principle. If you stand for elections, I mean, people fought and died for the right to vote, right? Well, they fought and died for the right to choose between who to vote for. And at the moment, you can't choose 
easier to vote for because Keir Starmer's not telling you what it is you're voting for. I've heard that Keir Starmer is spending a lot of money on focus groups to try to get a handle on what the public opinion is. That's the concern. For a bloke whose job relies on standing for public election every few years, you should be in touch with what the public thinks. And actually, by and large, especially the more, I'm being general here, the more working class areas that Labour frankly needs to win, right? You need to support this country, you need to back the Queen, you need to kind of be proud of the flag, sing the national anthem, don't take the knee, in my opinion. And Keir Starmer does the opposite of all of those things, or at least seems to be in part. Well, it could things. be worse, uh, Dan. It could be uh, uh, Dawn yeah. Butler. She, she, her, her manoeuvres this week were quite obviously uh, uh, a teeing up of a, of a future leadership challenge. Uh, how would Don Butler play in the country, do you think? Dan? Why has the Labour Party failed so miserably? I mean, you understand what neoliberalism is, right? I mean, you, you were a part, kind of, of, of that time. I just want to understand, like, why? Well, the Labour Party has fallen out of love uh, with the British people, and the British people have reciprocated. The Labour Party wants to infatuate, fetishise uh, identity politics of race and sex and gender and everything except class. Yeah, but don't, don't you think Labour had some parts of playing that, though, with the whole yeah. classism thing? I mean... Like, you're supposed to be old Labour, right? You went against new Labour, in the commas. But don't you think it's on people like you to promote actual well, Labour policies or <laughs> no, whatever? No, why should I... What do I owe the Labour Party, Dan? I think the Labour Party is a cata catastrophic disaster. It so has... do something about it, then. Why, why are you complaining about it? Why don't you do something about it right? instead of complaining? It's like everyone wants to complain the left is shit. Pardon my uh, well, I'm not going to pardon it, uh, but Dan obviously doesn't know that I'm actually the leader of a rival political party and stand against the Labour Party in, uh, in elections. Uh, let's hear from Andrew in Cleveland in the US. Go ahead, Andrew. Hey, I, I'm an organizer with a group called uh, Action for Assange. We're a, a decentralized global protest network that's been working to secure Julian's freedom for the last two plus years now. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I just want to say I appreciate your unyielding support of him. Um, you've been someone that's always uh, done a great job speaking out on his behalf. Um, so thank you. It's thank my you. duty. It's my duty to do so. But one of the things that we do, because um, we do a, a regular show on YouTube, just keeping people up to date on the information in Julian's case. Um, one of the things we do is we go through the numbers, and it's a uh, date since important. It's the time passed since important dates. So we have 3,876 days of illegal and arbitrary detention for Julian Assange. Um, it's been 840 days since the WikiLeaks founder was trafficked from the Ecuadorian embassy after being sold to the U.S. and the U.K. for a $4.2 billion loan from the International Monetary Fund to uh, Lenin Moreno's Ecuadorian government. Uh, we have 203 days since Vanessa Baritzer's January 6th ruling denying Julian Assange bail um, after personally ordering his release and ruling no extradition in his case. Um, and we have, um, just as an example of what happens here in the United States, um, 1,433 days of inhumane pretrial detention for a not even proven whistleblower, Joshua Schultz, of the Vault 7 Weeks. Um, and 985 of those days, uh, minimum, 
have been spent in special administrative measures, which is a heinous, heinous type of lockdown. Um, I would- uh, the U.S. Uh, injustice system is uh, infamous uh, throughout the world. Thanks, Andrew, for that uh, call. It is a bit funny, if you don't mind me mm. saying, Patrick, that all these libertarian mm. uh, journalists and broadcasters never seem to find time to mention that there's a guy rotting in, in Belmarsh uh, for publishing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, there was not more made of the fact that in this country right now, this very government is trying to actively pass a law that if you leak as a journalist, if you leak anything that comes from you from within a government department, you could face 14 years in prison. So, for example, whoever it may have been who dished out the Matt Hancock stuff, right? They could now, under this law, be facing yeah, 14, 14 years. years of bird, right? For that. I mean, it's a lot, right? It's a lot by anyone. It's enough to, enough to turn anyone, right? So you think, well, actually, this is, this is Britain. This is supposedly the home, one, of the, one of the homes of democracy, one of the homes of Western democracy. And we've got a government at the moment that not only on top of that, also wants to stifle your rights of protest. I actually had an Albanian cab driver, right, the other day, who said that as a condition of his uh, right to remain in this country, if he was ever found attending what was deemed to be an illegal gathering or an illegal protest, he could have his citizenship removed. Well, it's only illegal if the government calls it illegal, right? And they've passed laws that now could make basically anything, anything they want illegal. illegal. So it's a rigged game, right? And so we're in a situation now, not only where we have this, this, this literally criminal situation with, with Assange, right? But we also have a situation where, frankly, if a minister passed me something or anyone passed me something... As that could, could happen. As could, could happen, indeed. Uh, that exposes someone right at the top of government doing something catastrophically awful that we all need to know about, I could go to jail for 14 years for that. And that has to be wrong. Uh, on that subject, um, Kay Karma says this is the injustice that needs airing, the Julian Assange case. Although I guess it wouldn't help your viewing ratings, eh? Question mark. Are you actually insane? <laughs> there is no programme anywhere, on any media, anywhere, in the entire world that has showcased the Julian Assange issue more than this one. There is no frontline political person in this country done more to highlight the Julian Assange case than me. Uh, the public sometimes uh, amazes me. Richard is in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Good evening, George. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Patrick. Um, at the end of the at the end of the day, George, um, I hope that this this week will bring you some uh, karma with regards uh, to Julian Assange because he's got an appeal going, hasn't he? On uh, Thursday, I think. Yes, we we very much hope that uh, Julian will finally be released. We very much regret uh, that yep. the incoming U.S. government of Joe Biden has not dropped the case. Uh, it, that it, it's unconscionable uh, that Julian might spend several years uh, untried, unconvicted, in Belmarsh prison uh, when he could have a tag on uh, and be uh, under uh, home detention while his, uh, while his case is, uh, is determined. And as I couldn't the, agree more with you, George. The judge has already decided he shouldn't be extradited. So the, the onus is on the person doing the appealing, Patrick. When you look at some of the people that we do have out walking the streets now, and, uh, and one of the great examples, though it's a really harrowing topic, this, is some of the grooming guns we've had in this country, right? There are people there who've committed, you know, 
some of the most obscene things you can do, who've now been in prison for maybe something like two and a half years and been allowed back out into the same town where their victims still live. And then you've got Julian Assange, who published stuff that we all just needed to know about, right? And this is a guy now who's fronting up to... Well, what is he fronting up to? Rotting in a jail cell indefinitely until, you know, some political power decide. I mean, that's, that's just not right. That just doesn't make any sense, right? No, uh, and uh, it is a journalist, and yet most journalists uh, seem completely uninterested is amazing. Sorry to hurry you, Richard, because there's a legend on the line. <laughs> it's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George and Patrick. Um, you are I'm watching in... the Olympics. I'm sure <laughs> of that. Well, I am, because, to be honest, it's a pleasant diversion. Yeah. The thing is, George, I watched the opening ceremony, and it was a bit long, but I'm an internationalist, so I think you are. Mm -hmm. And I love seeing all the hundreds of nations with their flags. Sure, I and like then it too, at yeah. one point, one point they played John Lennon's Imagine. I don't know if you heard it, but it was quite moving. Yeah. So that started me off quite well, he said. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And then I was thinking, well, there's all these contestants in the various sports. They worked so hard. Last year it was cancelled. And I just enjoy watching, especially the athletics and the gymnasts. Um, it's a shame that there's nobody in the stadiums. But you see, I reckon Japan should have badly organised themselves. They should have organised more to be populate, um, vaccinated. Yeah, but the problem, the problem is, Norma, yeah. the, the vast majority of the Japanese public don't want it mm. to be happening because they're scared they're of the virus. They're not yeah, and they've, they've not vaccinated nearly enough people. It's just totally bad organisation, really. But um, going back to climate change, apparently there might be a very bad storm weather coming in the next day or two, so God knows what's going to happen well, now. Well, it's already uh, hitting uh, central London. Patrick had yep. to swim here uh, this evening. <laughs> if he didn't, he'll have to <laughs> swim out. Uh, it, it, yeah, it really is. Uh, thanks, Norma, for that. It really yeah, yeah. is extremely. Yeah, I, I didn't bring unexpected. A, I didn't bring an umbrella, and I spent the last ten minutes before coming on air with my head under your hand dryer in the toilet. Really? So, uh, so that's that's something. It reminded me of being bullied at school, you know, which obviously never happened. But uh, you know, so, uh, so yeah, no, it was uh, it was it's, it's extreme weather. I do think it's a little look. I don't know where you sit on this, but I do think it's a little bit premature. Everyone now points at this and goes, "Well, look at climate Right, I can remember. Terrible weather, right, when I was younger yeah, as sure. well, right, before we were kind of having this debate. So I think it's a little bit much to go now, oh, well, it's obviously... I, all I think, well, we had someone on who I'm told is a Fox News, uh, uh, I didn't know that, but a Fox News man. Uh, he didn't deny there's climate yeah, change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we may have different views on how it, how it got here. There have been extreme weather events forever. Yeah. And there have been climate changes forever. Uh, but he had some pretty sensible points to make. We should all live a better life. We should all live a greener, cleaner life. We should all invest in uh, infrastructure that can deal with floods, for example. I mean, one of the problems outside our door right now is that most of London's sewage uh, was built in the Victorian uh, era. 
yeah. and simply can't stand up to the pressures no. of uh, these weather changes. No, absolutely. So we have an infrastructure problem, especially in a city the size of London. We do have an infrastructure problem. London was simply not designed, certainly the transport system in London was not designed for the volume of people that there are using it now, and etc, etc, etc. Or the volume of cyclists well, yeah, yeah, that yeah, the yeah, mayor yeah, yeah. has encouraged. But also, I think you ought to look at the people who are supposedly the leading examples of this. You know, your likes of your Prince Harry's, etc. Well, he thinks nothing about taking a private jet anywhere and when he gets out on that private jet he gets in a you know a huge a diesel yeah, yeah diesel jugging car you know Sadiq Khan rolls around in a car quite regularly you know despite inflicting cycle lanes on the rest of us and so you think about actually how genuine are the people in charge about fighting climate change why do people like you and I have to foot the bill for it this is the problem throughout that the credibility of our rulers is such yeah. that even when they're right people don't believe them people doubt them people question their motives uh, Patrick, wonderful to see yes, you again. Mate. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, please come back next week at the same time and same place with another listener. Don't forget the podcast. And here's the poll result. Joe Biden is clearly senile. 67% of you, two-thirds of you, think Joe Biden, the president of the U.S., is clearly senile. And 18% of you think it's at least arguable. Good night. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.